Welcome to Blind Date with Knowledge. This is a weekly half-hour talk show featuring Queen's University researchers and scholars. The show is a platform for Queen's researchers to discuss the significance to and benefits of their research on everyday lives. I'm Barry Kaplan, the show's host. Blind Date with Knowledge is broadcast on CFRC Radio, 101.9 FM, Campus and Community, Queen's Radio in Kingston. It's located in Carruthers Hall. All the episodes of Blind Date with Knowledge are available on the CFRC website or the Queen's University Research website at queensu.ca research. Today's episode is something new for our show. Rather than having a 15-minute conversation with one researcher, we'll be having a 30-minute panel discussion with three researchers from the Queen's Cardiopulmonary Unit. So let me uh, give you a little bit of background on the Queen's Cardiopulmonary Unit. The Canada Foundation for Innovation and the Ontario Ministry of Research, Innovation and Science have jointly awarded $7.7 million to Dr. Stephen Archer and the team of more than 20 investigators to establish the Queen's Cardiopulmonary Unit, abbreviated to QCPU. QCPU's research focuses on the development, preclinical testing, and commercialization of new therapies for heart, lung, blood, and vascular diseases. Built on existing institutional and government investments, it enhances linkages between basic and clinical investigators at Queen's. The QCPU facility officially opened its doors on October 6, 2017. Now let me take a couple of minutes and introduce our three guests on today's panel. Stephen Archer is the head of the Department of Medicine at Queen's University. He holds a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Microchondria's Dynamics and Translational Medicine. Dr. Archer is the Scientific Director of Queen's Cardiopulmonary Unit, a new state-of-the-art translational research facility. QCPU focuses on the development, preclinical testing, and commercialization of new therapies for heart, lung, blood, and vascular diseases. Dr. Paula James is a clinical scientist and professor in the Department of Medicine. Her research investigates the genetic basis of inherited bleeding disorders, as well as the quantitation of bleeding symptoms, and her work has recently been honored with the 2017 Cecil Harris Award from the Canadian Hemophilia Society. She has also developed a website called Let's Talk Period that includes a bleeding assessment tool to help women who may be suffering from bleeding disorders. This website has been visited over 23,000 times. Dr. Mark Ormiston is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine, joining the faculty in 2015 after completing a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Ormiston studies pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is a deadly disease of the blood vessels in the lung that preferentially affects women in their 30s to 50s. He is currently investigating how immune dysfunction may be critical to disease development and could offer a new avenue for treatment. So welcome everybody. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Uh, we've got a number of questions prepared, and uh, um, uh, I think we'll, we'll just uh, dive right in and see where our conversation goes. So, tell us about card- cardiopulmonary disease. What is it? How does is it like? Is it like one of the most major threats to society? How does it relate to cancer? 
the impact of cancer or diabetes? So maybe I can start us off with that. <clears throat> the cardiopulmonary diseases that cover a broad spectrum from things like heart attack and stroke, uh, COPD, chronic obstructive lung disease, asthma, um, thrombotic diseases like pulmonary embolism and blood clots. So these are extremely common. And not that a physician wants to be bragging about how many people die from their diseases, but it's the leading cause of death in adults in Canada. And like cancer, is a huge public health problem. Hmm. What's the impact to to uh, taxpayers to uh, to combat this kind of a thing, and what what might be the impact to society in terms of lost productivity uh, with this kind of a, a situation? Is that was that one of the motivating uh, factors in uh, thinking about? the uh, facility, the uh, unit? Yeah, certainly one of the themes of all research is we're not there yet. If it were cured, we wouldn't be doing research on it. So these are diseases where we've made progress. If, if you look, women live on average seven years longer than men. One, one of the reasons they live longer has been that there's been really excess cardiovascular mortality amongst men. Now as women are living longer, they are also getting cardiovascular diseases. So, you know, this this is something that shortens the life's span of people in our country and it affects everyone from babies who have congenital heart disease to women who are postmenopausal to everything in between and so the, we because we don't have cures for everything and if we have cures they're often expensive we want to discover things that prevent disease that diagnose disease that um, allow people to live better longer lives how does Canada fare compared to other countries with respect to incidence of cardiopulmonary disease? Well, I think we're about even. Uh, I can't think of any reason why we would be overrepresented. So it's not necessarily a disease that's caused by lifestyle? Um, well, with some forms, you can think of COPD, um, which is something that is directly linked to smoking. Um, and there's obviously diet effects that will influence your risks of developing heart disease. Uh, so there are some ways in which you can control it. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the uh, the unit. Um, uh, give us a profile. I mean, we've uh, we've talked a little bit in the intro about what the uh, QCPU does, but let's let's dive into that a little bit more. So, give our listeners some background. I think what's so unique about QCPU is that it's an integrated space where we can see patients, um, but also do cutting-edge research on their samples, their blood or their tissue samples that we can obtain in the unit. And there are um, facilities to phenotype their disease. And then on the other side of the hallway, uh, really highly trained scientists who can help us and our students um, work up the patient's problem and try to understand the biology of their disease so that we can make improvements in how we diagnose it and also how we treat it. So I think it's the integration of everything in one space that's quite unique. When I did a tour of the, of the facility last week, uh, one of the things that, uh, one of the stories that I was told was prior to your facility, it, it would be that you might have to take a sample and hop in a taxi and drive across town uh, to another facility and, you know, talk about the inconvenience. I don't know if there's any kind of corruption that, that might happen with the sample in that case. Whereas here, you've, you've kind of got it all under one roof. 
That was actually the case in, in uh, for the clinic that I was dealing with in Cambridge in the UK. The clinic and the lab were separated by about a half an hour car ride, um, and you were constantly on your phone organizing a taxi. Often we didn't actually tell the taxi t driver what was in the tube that they were, or the envelope they were transplanting, or sorry, tran transporting. Um, we would just be told to accept or to be ready to accept it at a particular time, um, and it, it definitely put a limit on the amount of work that we could do and the quality of the work. If you actually look at QCPU in the Biologic Sciences Building, it, it, it's a rectangle. And as you walk around the rectangle, you're making a translational journey. So you go from uh, part of it, which is the Kingston Health Sciences Center-approved uh, satellite where patients get health care and engage in clinical research. You can have uh, a bullpen full of young trainees that are learning about translational medicine, which is going all the way from molecules to populations and back. In other words, you have heart disease or you bleed pathologically. Why on a molecular level? How do you make a therapy, etc.? These kids are learning that science. So you can go from the trainees to the clinical, then you go around the corner, as Dr. James was saying, and all of a sudden you're surrounded by a two-photon confocal microscope that can look inside the cell and see things that are 100 uh, nanometers in size, or you can uh, go to the micro pet spec CT and see a beating mouse heart, or you can you know, do any of these really cool things. And, and one of the revolutionary things in QCPU, the model is we, even though scientists like the three of us each have our own research programs, we know certain things, but to run some of these machines requires highly advanced people. And so we've been really lucky to recruit people like Dr. Patricia Lima and Dr. Charles Heinmarch, who are the scientists in QCPU, and they basically uh, explain to us how these things work, and they bring our dreams as well as their own to life. So as you walk around, you're going from basic to clinical, back to basic again, and that's how we, that's what translational research sort of means. It's the idea of taking basic knowledge and translating it into improving health or taking a health problem and going back and understanding at a more fundamental level, which may lead to a diagnostic test, all the while educating kids at Queen's and from and drawing people like a magnet. And Dr. James has been instrumental in leading this, drawing kids into Queen's who want to learn that, that craft and that science. Can you talk a little bit more about the equipment there? You mentioned the photon microscope and you mentioned another machine, I forget what it was called. I know, again, when I went on that tour, I was told this is, this is not an electron microscope, this is a photon microscope, so it's more accurate and costs like a million dollars. Can you talk a little bit more about the equipment? Because that was really fascinating. So it costs a million dollars is probably, can, can go for a number of different pieces of equipment in that facility. Okay. And that's the thing that actually makes it so exceptional is because each of those pieces of equipment dramatically ups our game in terms of the amount of, or the type of work that we can do. Um, I can think of at least two pieces of equipment that have actually dictated grants that I've written and ideas that I've had. Um, so these are ideas that I wouldn't have had if I didn't actually have the piece of equipment that I would need to test that idea. Um, and it's a, you don't want to be technology-driven in your research, but at the same time, you do want the most sophisticated and elegant way of testing your research questions. Um, so, so there's the two-photon microscope, which allows us to um, look inside living tissues. Um, there's uh, the Cytoff mass cytometer, which allows us to analyze up to 40 different protein markers on a single cell level in a mixed population of cells. So this allows us to um, phenotype, so kind of get a, get a, a marker characteristic map of, of 
different cells within a very different population. So this is a population that we would have thought was relatively uniform uh, previously, but now we have the ability to really dig down and see the, the subtle ways in which those cells are different. Um, there's the next generation sequencer, which allows us to, if we wanted to, sequence an entire genome in a day. Um, so th these are things that dramatically change the kind of work that we can do at, at Queen's. Right. So you, now you mentioned upping the game. Mm -hmm. So you've got this brand new, wonderful facility. You've got amazing equipment. You need amazing people to populate the place. Can you talk a little bit about some of your researchers and what they do? Well, I, I think immense credit has to go to Dr. Archer for the vision that he had for building this unit. Um, and so his leadership has been instrumental in making it come to life. He mentioned Dr. Heinmarch and Dr. Lima, who are extraordinarily um, talented scientists who have a gift for um, making the technical side of what they do understandable for, sometimes for the researchers ourselves, but um, and they are researchers in their own right, but also for our students and teaching them how those technologies um, can improve the quality of the research they're doing. There's people like Dr. Ormiston, um, Dr. Don Maurice, so uh, PhD scientists who are very interested in that translational um, way of doing research and who are working right alongside with MD researchers like myself or Dr. Armajori, who's a cardiologist, um, really to have that crosstalk be as successful as we can be in terms of, of doing good science. One of the things I just mentioned, like the theme of your show that you mentioned before we went on the air was about how there's so many cool things going on at Queen's, but people don't necessarily know about them. You can think about QCPU the same way. It's a catalyst. It brings people together that are perfectly friendly to each other. They may even know each other, but they have no clue what each other does. And you remember there's an old book at Queen's called Who's Where, which we used to, before the era of data privacy, would tell you where people came from and where they lived at Queen's. And in a way, QCPU is a mixing ground where people will find tools they need that's a substitute for huge startup grants so they get access to this very expensive equipment that allows them to compete internationally so they can get grants. They meet people and all of a sudden you begin to realize, oh, Dr. James is working on women that bleed too much because they have von Willebrand's disease. I hadn't thought of that. I wonder if von Willebrand's disease is relevant to pulmonary hypertension. Mark and I partner on pulmonary hypertension and if you think of that translational journey, a woman can come into that QCPU center looked after by Dr. Christine Darcy, who's our pulmonary hypertension specialist. Uh, uh, excellent clinician in the Division of Respirology. Her patient could come there and do their six-minute walk test, get an experimental drug, and be evaluated in a clinical trial, giving the patient access to the latest and greatest medicine, have an echocardiogram of her heart to see how the therapy was working, give blood, and in the blood of all of us, there are circulating stem cells called endothelial progenitor cells that Dr. Ormiston's an expert in. We can take those stem cells, literally walk them 15 feet around the corner, and put them in a cell culture facility. Then we can study those stem cells. He can measure his 40 proteins on his cytoff. Dr. Lima can take pictures of those cells that came from that patient with pulmonary hypertension and say, you know what's interesting about that patient is she has this, that, or the other thing. We call that pattern a phenotype. And then we can take those animal models and image the experimental model to try to say, if we intervene on that pathway we saw in that person's cells, uh, can we make the animal model 
cure itself or can it be cured, in which case then we can take that back to people and say, you know, if we target this mitochondrial pathway or this von Willebrand's pathway, we can affect a disease positively for patients. So it, it is interesting. It brings people together. We also have a cool innovation in QCPU called a kitchen. It has a coffee pot <laughs> and a table, and people can sit around and actually say, you know, I got this viral vector from a certain company, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I want that viral vector too. Can I get it from you? That aspect of the uh, serendipity of information change and the excitement that might be uh, conveyed in face-to-face spontaneous interactions to me sounds something very innovative on its own. So there's sounds like there's the seed of a shift in sort of organizational theory here. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, Stephen mentioned the, the kitchen and I mentioned before the crash space, but talk a little bit more about some of the un- unique cultural things that are developing in the, in the uh, facility. It's it's funny because I was just talking to a colleague uh, a few days ago, and Queens isn't a big place yet. Um, we still seem to need excuses to work together. So we were, the end of that conversation was, yeah, we should really work together. And the number of times you have a, yeah, we should really work together conversation is, is exceptional. The number of times you actually get to work together is, is substantially lower, which is disappointing. So a place like the QCPU allows you to actually get together, talk about the work you're doing. We have uh, monthly meetings called these research and progress meetings. The idea is not to take your polished work, but take work that's in progress, work that's messy, work that really needs the advice and input from other researchers. Present it to your colleagues, um, other QCPU scientists. Get as much feedback as you can possibly get. Maybe propose a new collaboration. Um, so. It, it, these are the kind of things that are spin-offs from having the center there um, that simply weren't happening uh, previously. So it's Terrific. a great advantage. So this is a, a weekly structure? Uh, mon- monthly structure. Monthly structure. So we have uh, at least six participating labs um, right now. Uh, it's usually frequented by up, up to 20 scientists. Um, and these are these are meetings that didn't happen previously. Uh, or, or you would get to see somebody's work, but only when it was this, at the stage of a final finished product. Um, and having a suggestion, oh, I wish you'd done this, or oh, I wish you'd done that, would have been most helpful helpful a year or eight months prior to that, that presentation. So this is a way to intervene uh, and get involved and work together sooner. Fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, acceptance of uh, the researchers and the students to this new kind of a, a structure? Is there sort of a, a little bit of hesitation and trepidation, or are people sort of diving in and saying, where, where has this been for you know my entire life? Yeah, I think everybody's really excited. It is uh, a unique approach to doing science. All of us traditionally have our own meetings with our own research lab or our research group. Um, but the chance for my students to present their work and get input at an early stage from scientists of the caliber of Dr. Archer or Dr. Ormiston is invaluable. And so they're nervous, but very excited uh, to be part of that forum and to have the chance to hear people at this level interacting and commenting and providing suggestions and, well, your cells are behaving like this. Did you think about doing this? That worked in my lab. And it's extraordinary. And there's been a lot of excitement and great participation so far. Sounds fantastic. I know you're focused on, Paula, you're focused on 
uh, your students. And can you talk a little bit more about the the, the uh, unique learning opportunities? Yeah, so I've been involved for uh, the last couple of years in developing a new graduate program at Queen's University, and it's a traditional thesis-based or research-based master's and PhD programs that we're hoping to have launched in September of 2018. So we're still in the development process right now and going through the stages of approval at Queen's. Um, And so the programs will be called Translational Medicine, and they're explicitly designed to provide students with the curriculum to become translational researchers. And so what's particularly unique about what we've done with the program is graduate students will have the opportunity to interact with patients. And that doesn't exist right now at any other university in Canada, maybe in North America and actually maybe internationally. It's actually quite a unique approach to teaching students the importance of what they're doing. Um, And so the idea is that both in the classroom setting where they would hear a lecture from an expert on translational research, uh, so let's say they hear a lecture on pulmonary hypertension, that's the first hour um, in one of our courses. The second hour would actually be a patient who has pulmonary hypertension coming into the classroom to talk with the students and interact with them, give the students a chance to ask them questions so the students can really start to understand the patient perspective. What does it mean to live with this disease? What do I think of the treatments that I've been offered? Do I secretly not take them because the side effects are horrible and I don't want to tell my doctor that. Um, What are my hopes for the future in terms of if this is an inherited disorder and I have family members who are also affected. And so that crosstalk, you can't do any better in terms of providing a motivation for your student when they're in the lab at midnight and their experiments are failing. It's the perfect way to get them to understand why they've got to persevere um, and why they have to keep trying even when things look like they're going wrong. Because most of the time in science, things don't work and we have to learn from that and, um, and proceed. So that's really the the vision of the program and the way we've designed the curriculum. So we're really excited um, to be able to offer this to students, hopefully starting soon. Sounds like a brilliant idea. Now, you you mentioned that this is a very unique uh, component of what you're doing. Why has it why hasn't it happened earlier and and what what did you have to what barriers did you have to overcome to to get to this point? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I agree with you completely. I. I have always thought it was just obvious that's what that's what we should do and I've been taking my graduate students when they have appropriate permissions to clinic with me all along but that was never really embedded in a curriculum or part of a program so I don't know why it took um, until now for this to become formalized perhaps that research in the past has maybe been seen as siloed so um, There are MDs who do research with patients, and then there are PhDs who do research on the bench. And I think we're trying to challenge that paradigm that we don't think it has to be that way. Um, And MDs and PhDs should work together, and everybody should have the opportunity to understand bench research, but also understand the patient perspective. The initial barriers were actually just getting people to understand the concept. And I had very differing responses in the beginning. where people were, some people saying, I don't think that's gonna work. And then some other people saying that's the greatest idea we've ever heard. And we had to just, I think, 
persevere to keep explaining our vision and what we were trying to create in terms of the education we want to give our students. And I have to say that I think once people understood, which took a bit because it is a new idea, um, we've had incredible support from the university and from the School of Graduate Studies. We had to go through an external review just before Christmas and the feedback we got was very heartening um, that we were on the right track in creating something pretty special here. I think it's all, you know, this uh, program, QCPU, is a research center. It's part of a larger entity that a colleague of mine, Stephen Vanner, who's the deputy head of medicine and runs Gidru, a research facility here. Uh, he's a gastroenterologist. So Stephen and I, over coffee, were dreaming up ideas about how to make Queens more competitive as a place to do research. And uh, this graduate program, which Paul has, Paul, Paula has envisioned and brought to life, uh, is part of a larger enterprise called Time, which includes also something called UniWeb, which is our website, which will link scientists to infrastructure and bring people together, as well as giving access for all these people in a very inclusive way to this state-of-the-art technology run by scientists that actually know how to make it happen. So that was part of a coffee conversation with Dr. Vanner, and Paula has been instrumental in leading the graduate program. but. I think part of it was the university committing, Dr. Wolf committing as the principal to saying we want to rise in the U15, we want to be more research intensive and I think Daniel has seen the value in this and that kind of support from him and uh, Dean Resnick and Roger Dealey, that's been instrumental. It's First you have to say research is important and then you have to invest in it. So even though it came from a grant, you had to get permission to write the grant. Um, so we got permission to write the grant. It, that's successful. Then you can build a graduate program, hang it on that. And I also have to give a shout out to my 120 colleagues in the Department of Medicine who actually fund this out of their salaries and actually pay to make this stuff happen. So these are docs um, who are seeing patients who actually understand that where we are in 2018 is not the destination. We're on a journey that will go on forever to improving human health um, and discovering things that may not directly relate to human health. We're just one species on the planet, but if we focus on human health for a minute, this is a journey. They put their money into it and their time into it. I think, Paul, you've drafted 30 healthy volunteers who are delighted to teach that you're a crop of graduate students, right? Yeah, we've had really great um, buy-in from our faculty recognizing that this was going to be something really innovative and something they wanted to be part of. So. I, from the department, we've had incredible buy-in. Um, people really excited to be involved. Yeah, and other departments are, are, are getting involved. We have, like, Don Maurice, who's uh, uh, one of the people who, who, with Mark and I, run QCPU administratively. Um, you know, DBMS, the basic science department uh, that Mark uh, that Mike Adams runs, has many faculty there have been very engaged, uh, and the same in uh, lab medicine and other departments. And as you begin to put out these toys, it's interesting, you know, Galileo might have had a, uh, a microscope and, Le I mean, a telescope and Leibniz might have had a microscope, you bring these tools and you sh like Mark said, you shouldn't base your science on technology, but suddenly when you can see something or measure something you couldn't, um, I mean, if you look at our Dr. McDonald's Nobel Prize, they built a special tool. They certainly had a special vision, but without the snow lab, they couldn't have done their neutrino research. Researchers at Queens have suffered from not being technologically armed to the teeth, and in a friendly way, for positive reasons. We are in competition with Harvard, Oxford, University of Toronto, 
you don't get to publish B-level science because you're from a certain place, right? You want to publish A-level science. When you start giving our A-level minds here at Queen's the tools, they compete very effectively with all those institutions. And so I think, uh, you know, credit to the, the folks above who have been willing to sort of help foster this. One of the things we haven't talked about to this point is the commercialization of intellectual property. Let's take a few minutes and uh, maybe this could be our, our final uh, point in the uh, panel discussion. Yeah. So actually, there's a, there's an irony. We uh, QCPU exists in a space that was occupied by Partech, uh, which is the excellent technology transfer group uh, uh, and commercialization group at Queens, and we remain very engaged with them. It's not easy to take an idea and turn it into a drug. So I, I think it would be I think part of our role to be responsible scientists is not to falsely pretend we've cured cancer or that pulmonary hypertension is gone or there's no more hemophilia and not declare victory prematurely, but step by step along the way, you can discover things that become diagnostic tests, um, new ways of doing things, new methodology, and maybe eventually a drug that actually does prevent or cure a disease. And there are lots of examples like that around the world of academic investigators eventually discovering, you know, you discover the human papillomavirus, and it takes a mere 25 years, and then you have an HPV vaccine, and all of a sudden women are not getting cervical cancer. But to say that any one of us is going from the bench to the bedside, the full journey may take many people, it may take some time, but we are really well positioned. And so when we make a discovery in QCPU, even though the work belongs to Mark Ormiston or Alberto Nieder or Paula James or whoever the scientist is, we're always looking at it like, is this a product? Is this something that can be commercialized? Um, and so we can translate it into something that actually helps people. Wonderful. My guests in this episode of Blind Date with Knowledge have been Drs. Stephen Archer, Paula James, and Mark Ormiston from the Queen's Cardiopulmonary Unit. If you have a question about anything related to research that you'd like discussed by our guests, or if you have comments about today's discussion concerning the Queen's Cardiopulmonary Unit, please email me, Barry Kaplan, at bdwk at cfrc.ca. Thanks for tuning in. This show is produced in collaboration with CFRC at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, with infrastructure support from Queen's Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Find more great podcasts at podcasts.cfrc.ca.